Hey, what's going on, good people? It's Gardener Douglas, your Oyster Ninja. I'm here with these beautiful folks. You probably recognize them as Fisher Island uh, oysters, but these guys are legends, legends in the game. If you want to know how to do it, you go and see these good folks. And uh, I'm gonna just gonna let them introduce themselves, and uh, we'll go from there. How's it going, Sarah? It's good. <laughs> nice to see you, Gardner. Um, we are Sarah and Steve Malinowski, and we've been um, farming farming for almost 40, 41 years. 41, 41 years. years. Whew, wow. Started, started out as a clam farm. Initially, that, that didn't, didn't do it for us. And we pivoted to oysters about 35 years ago and have been growing oysters ever since. And our business is a, uh, it's really a combination of growing and selling oysters to, to restaurants and individuals and growing seed and selling that seed to other farms. And I would just like to say that we started out very small and for 15 years, it was pretty much Steve and myself and maybe one or two other people, some, some part-time people and, um, built everything ourselves just it took a long sort of slow process long slow determined process with a lot of I would say perseverance um and things started I don't know Go well I, I think that the, <laughs> the the real breakthrough for us was being having the opportunity to to move to a house that was that had access to water that was on the water and what's been really fun about the process is that our, our business is basically in our backyard. And um, we've always worked out of our house. Our, our, uh, our kids at one time or another all work for us. And so it's been a uh, definitely challenging, but really rewarding experience. And in that sense, um, in every sort of, we, we really did have a family farm and it was, that was just sort of the life that our children grew up in as farmers. And you don't really think of that with oyster farmers, but every spring break, every summer break, afternoons, days off, we were all working together for the, and that was, um, I think that was really the most important thing for us is that we wanted a lifestyle. We wanted to be with our kids and we didn't want to have our commute is five minute, you know, to one minute. Um, Often by boat. And, <laughs> and um, so we feel very lucky that um, we pulled it off and that, um, and I think all of our kids, they complained a lot along the way, but um, I think they all really appreciate having that kind of a upbringing. So 40 some years ago, like what was the uh, motivation to start a, you know, a, a farm? Like who else was doing it, first of all? And like, just what was the motivation to start a farm? There, there were very few people doing it. And it, I was in graduate school at the time and studying clams. And at that time, there was some research that was done at BIMS. Um, by a couple of um, very influential biologists, very influential in the shellfish world. 
And they were doing experiments on how to grow clams and actually produced a little manual on how to do it. And so while I was doing my research at school, I got very interested in farming clams. And so while, while I was at school, um, we set up a little pilot scale farm and um, thought we were going to be clam barons, but it never worked out. <laughs> well, and, and Steve even wrote a booklet on how to grow clams if you lived in urban areas for New York City. He got a grant to, um, so you also. Yeah, we, we supported ourselves for the first seven years doing grant supported research. Um, you know, at that time, there was, there were very few people trying to do what we were doing. And, and at the same time, both the federal government and the state of New York were, were keen on trying to create an aquaculture industry. So there was grant money available. And we took advantage of that and that supported us for about the first seven years. Nice. That's awesome. So even back then, you know, it was uh, important to the government to, you know, really get things going in aquaculture. What was the reason? Why were, why did they? Well, it, Carter, I think, you know, I think it's, I think it's all related to declining wild stocks. Um, some of the earliest programs that the government had related to shellfish farming had, had to do with job training for fishermen that were out of work because the resource was just not there anymore. Well, yeah, and we'll talk about that a little, a little bit more, you know, as we go on. But I just want to talk uh, a little bit more about just bringing the family together and uh, everybody working on the farm. And um, I know you, why, why was it so important for you to guys, for you guys to get the young kids involved? I really think that there's a little bit of, um, um, I don't want to use the word hippie too much, but we, you know, our friends were sort of, go, you know, going, getting out of college and all planning to go to Wall Street or do something like that. And we just wanted to do something different. We didn't want to, um, I don't know. And, and, and I think that the, the uh, what was important to us was where we lived and we actually decided to settle on Fisher's Island before mm -hmm. we figured out what we were gonna do for a living and um, kind of made it, made it work. Well, and so that's a good point. So most people on Fisher's Island, it's sort of, it's a summer resort community. And most of our friends out here work for the summer seasonal people for the most part, either working, you know, construction or so in some kind of service industry. And we wanted to figure out how we could have a business that wasn't dependent on the summer community. Um, so that was also important, but I think we really just didn't want, you know, both of our dads went to the office, both of our moms were homemakers and um, we, we just wanted to try something different. Right. So are there any fun facts about Fisher Island that, you know, people don't know about or even like the area where you guys uh, raise your oysters now? Well, one one fun fact would be that the the nursery pond where we we grow oysters for the first year used to be a freshwater reservoir here on the island and the 38 hurricane breached it, turned it to salt. 
the military at that time, um, which was a large presence on the island, there's actually um, quite extensive remnants of the fort that was here, that are still that's still here. The military at that time actually pumped this 35-acre pond out until it became fresh, and um, it became the reservoir again. And then about 10 years after that, there was another storm that breached it and they gave up on it. So since then, it's been a brackish water pond and um, we, get our, we, we, we get our water from wells now here on the island and not a reservoir. Um, well, fire? we have 230 year round residents here. Um, and speaking of the fort, Fisher's Island was um, sort of the furthest outpost protecting New York and New York Harbor um, for both World War. I think it's even, it, it, the fort started becoming, was developed in the late 1800s and then was active through the Second World War. And there's forts here on Fisher's Island and then Plum Island, Gardner's Island, in fact. Um, Go on, go on, go island, and then all these, you know, way out there. How many miles from New York City are we? Oh, probably almost a hundred. But so, so any any submarine or any warship or something that would come. I don't think any ever came. <laughs> There's a lot of. Um, 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 practices and but and at that time you know there there are 230 people that live here year-round now at that time there were more than 5,000 people that were stationed here wow that's that's it's like a ghost town down there yes compared well, to then you know it's it, the the military presence the history of the military presence is a lot like governor's island where you know there there are uh, in fact our we have an officer's row here on fisher's island that looks a lot like the officer's row on governor's island um, nice. so, mm -hmm. so let's just talk about your oysters a little bit so um i was reading on your website uh you guys uh do the bottom um growing for the oysters no bottom no bottom uh oh <laughs> We're suspension culture. No, what does that what does that mean? Suspension culture. So, so we we grow the oysters in nets that we suspend from long lines of buoys. So the oysters are actually in the water column. They never hit the bottom. And it's we feel the the most sustainable way to grow oysters because we have. Um, absolutely zero negative impact on the environment and actually quite a bit of positive impact on the environment. It's, it, it, if you want to think of it this way, it's as, it's as if you, if you went into a forest area and you wanted to create a farm, you would have to cut down the trees and the forest would disappear and then you would cultivate your crops. Well, the analogy would be if you could somehow leave that forest there and cultivate your crops on top of it without disturbing the forest. That's essentially what we're doing with our system. Yeah, I read my note now. It's off bottom farming. Off bottom. <laughs> Sorry about that. So you guys, what 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 makes your oysters so distinct, like far as flavor or you know, even like the cup shape or anything? 
Well, I think we're very fortunate when we were looking around for a site to grow our oysters, there wasn't, um, we didn't have many choices. And we ended up with this sort of five acre site behind a rock pile, sort of in, in our largest harbor. And every, so oysters taste and it's all about the water they're grown in. But we have a huge tidal influx twice a day, twice a 24 hour period that comes from the ocean. And, it, and the, when it comes storming down Fisher's Island Sound, which ends up in Long Island Sound, it, there's an eddy that it hits the rock pile and circles over our oysters and it's cold, salty, briny water. So it's really an ocean influence, um, not- Rather than an estuarine influence. Yeah. And it's, so every oyster, it's the luck of where they're growing is where their taste comes from. So as far as the, as the shape and the depth of the cup, that, that is something that we have a hatchery. And, and so we're, we're spawning oysters. And when we, what we do is when we're packing and shipping oysters, we pick out a couple of hundred of what we think are the most beautiful oysters that we have. Um, what we would love 100% of the oysters of our, in our boxes to be. And we use those for the parent stock. And um, we've been able to increase the growth rate. We've been able to increase the depth of the cup. Um, that The depth of the cup, however, also has to do with the growing technique that we use. It's very labor intensive. We handle those nets and our oysters a lot. And when you handle oysters a lot, it tends to make them deeper. So, like, I know you said you guys uh, did the clams at first, but like, what types of studies helped you along the way? Because you, you know, you guys are perfecting it. Obviously, you know, with um, putting those hundred or so to the side, those that parent stock. Like, where did this knowledge come from, or did it just trial and error? Lots of trial and error. <laughs> lots, lots of uh, killing oysters. Lots of error. <laughs> lots of error. <laughs> <laughs> with the infamous oh, I mean the, uh, yeah I got you it's interesting because there there's a, a lot of what all of us in this industry do is there, there is science behind it but there's definitely an art form to it so it's like the combination it, it, everybody what everybody's doing it, it has a solid grounding in that science but everybody does it a different way and everybody figures out a different way to do it. And usually people figure that out by trying to do it and uh, by trial and error. But now, I, I think I ask every oyster farmer this question, but what's the biggest changes you've seen in the water quality over the years? Well, we have, we are very lucky and we're lucky for, for the reasons that, that Sarah pointed out um, concerning our site, where our, our water quality is dependent on the water quality of the ocean. And um, that presumably will be the last to go. 
You know, it, we're not in an estuary. We're not really influenced by any kind of um, industrial or domestic pollution. We're just very fortunate to be in a site where we get this oceanic water that comes through our site. And we have a huge, I mean, we don't have huge high tides, but we have a huge tidal flow. So sometimes when we get one of these um, sort of what we think of as climate change storms with really intense, fast, a lot of rain in a short amount of time, you know, the Connecticut River, the Thames River, the Mystic River, these are the rivers along Connecticut that are across from us. Then usually, um, you know, we're very concerned, you know, depending on when it happens and if it would get over to Fisher's Island, but usually it's taken out to sea or it's close to New York City instead of us. Um, so, and there's no industry on Fisher's Island. I think the, um, so, so even though our oysters are close to shore, um, there's three houses, you know, all, they're, they're ju we just don't have any industry near us. I'm gonna ask you the toughest question you've probably ever been asked. How do we know climate change is real? Well, um... <laughs> Steve, she looks at you. Well, I, he is the scientist. I, I would say I, I am firmly behind the science. I believe the science. And, you know, I think, I think when, 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 when all the scientists line up, I think it's 98% are on one side and they're 2% on the other side. And those 2% generally have some sort of ulterior motive for why, why they're, why they don't buy into the science. But I, I think that there, there have just been so many studies that have been done where, where uh, we just passed uh, a, a, a landmark level in CO2 in our atmosphere. Um, the, we, can, we have these great records in the ice sheets that tell us how much carbon dioxide there's been. And, when we have these, uh, you know, climate change obviously is a, is a natural phenomenon, but when, when we look at this data, um, this ancient data, we, we see the changes that we're experiencing taking, you know, thousands of years to happen. And they're-, they're Before. Yeah. And, and now they're happening in decades rather than millennia. Um, we, I can't say that, that our farm has been, has been affected um, except for the increased frequency of storms. Storms are a big problem for us. Um, but there have certainly been areas, other areas that have been affected by ocean acidification, um, which is a consequence of, of the carbon that we're putting into the atmosphere. Uh, the, it almost destroyed the industry in the Northwest. And we have a... Uh, a farm, a friend in a farm in Maine um, that almost, it almost prevented him from producing in his hatchery because of the, the decrease in the pH that he saw. So now he has to modify the water that comes into his hatchery. 
And he's been doing it as long as we have. Never had to do that until about five years ago. So for the folks who uh, didn't listen to my episode with uh, Ocean Conservancy uh, with Brian Ono, can you just explain a little bit what ocean acidification is in so, a simple form? Yeah, to, so, so a very significant percentage of the carbon that, that we're putting into the atmosphere through all sorts of mechanisms, um, a significant part of that ends up getting dissolved in the ocean. And when it gets dissolved in the ocean, there are chemical reactions that occur that alter the pH of the water. And the, uh, this has been um, very, very well documented. And there's, uh, I think that the, we've documented now during, during the last few decades that the pH has decreased by about 0.2 um, points and it's a logarithmic scale so that's you know very significant and it's a problem for shellfish farmers because that that pH determines chemical reactions that make calcium carbonate available so if the pH gets too low it's not possible for a shellfish to create shell and it's particularly a problem with the larvae boom that's huge that's huge. Thank you for elaborating. So um, before we get off here, I just want to talk a little bit because I, I, like I said um, before, I want to do a whole episode um, on uh, Shellfish Growers Climate Co Coalition because it's just doing positive things for the, you know, the environment and just getting people aware of everything that's going on. But just could you talk about that a little bit? Well, that was um, Bill Mook. It was Bill Mook's idea for Mook Sea Farm. And he gathered, I think, six farmers together, seven farmers together from around the country. And particularly the Northwest and Maine oyster farms were having the ocean acidification problems. And um, we just felt that we needed, that we could offer our stories of what's happening to our farms and share them in a way that might resonate with people who don't realize what's happening. We sort of feel like we're, I mean, we know we're the canaries in the coal mine and you can't grow oysters anymore. There's a, you know, it's bad for everything. And um, the important thing about our coalition is that oyster farmers are like all farmers in that they're Republicans, Democrats, apolitical, non-political, we've got all the types. And so we all are struggling with the same problems. And um, so if we can bring us together to share our stories, we've, we feel that we are a group that can, um, that whether you're, you know, that we can speak with Re Republican Congress people and De Democratic Congress people, and we can bring them together and um, push the needle on lowering our carbon output. Um, and, and we've gotten to be, we've, we're over 200 members. Um, we're, we're not only oyster farmers, but we're also seafood distributors, restaurants, chefs, which is very important to us because, you know, we're out on this island, our farms are all over the place and chefs and restaurants and shuckers actually tell our stories. They're the ones who connect our stories with consumers. And so that's also a very important part of our, our group is using 
shuckers and chefs and you know restaurant managers to get this message out to consumers um, so they don't just you know so they think about where their oysters co come from and think about what it means what it would mean not to have oysters that would mean not to have a lot of other things too yes it would so um I'm gonna wrap this up, but I do want everybody to go try some Fisher Island oysters. Where can we get them from? Can we buy them directly from you? Yes, you can. <laughs> Just go to fishersislandoysters.com and talk to Molly, our daughter. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. So uh, are any raw bars open up there? Cause I know they're starting to open up a little bit uh, down here. Yeah, well, Connecticut, Connecticut has been open more than New York. During, during the whole pandemic. Um, and it, it uh, we're seeing, particularly in the last two weeks, that things, it seems like things are really getting going again. There aren't a lot of raw bars in our area. It's not, it's not like New York City. Right. Um, we do have a, a, a great one right across the way from us, the Oyster Club. Um, and then there's another one, uh, Shipwright's Daughter is also in Mystic. Mystic is a, is a neat little happening town. No, no raw bars on Fisher's Island. Right, got you. So, um, oh man, I don't forgot my question right now. Uh, boom, boom, boom. I don't know what I was gonna say. <laughs> you guys have me stumped. Um, so uh, I guess social media, you guys do the social media thing? That's how I found you. We try to, um, our daughter Molly's helping us out and mm -hmm. we feel it's a great way to connect with, with you know, people who love oysters. And also, um, I just like to say actually something about the Billion Oyster Project, Gardner. Of course, since we missed that episode, I was, I was they didn't hear, it, but yeah, uh, Billion Oyster, we did a great episode and somehow, the audio got lost and you guys never heard it. So, No, we didn't, we didn't. But I would just like to say as far, it's sort of like the Shellfish Growers Climate Coalition in that the um, Billion Oyster Party that brings all these oyster farmers together, we all are isolated. We all work in our own farm, do our own thing. And coming, that is so much fun. And, it, and between that and our getting together with... Um, shellfish growers from around the country with the coalition it's added a um just a really a lot of camaraderie and support for each other and it was um great during this pandemic because we kept in touch and really felt for everyone's pain and it was a commiserated and just between those two we didn't feel so isolated nobody everyone felt better was so that's the only reason i wanted to bring them up is that they were great they're great for bringing oyster farmers together well that made me um remember my question also and it was basically um the, the changes that the uh, pandemic has caused like far as numbers how, how i mean you don't have to do exact but like how um big of a change has it been since the pandemic pandemic been going been going on so so the last year, the last week of February, we had a 
great week. We, we shipped out a ton of oysters, one of our better weeks. And the week after we shipped out zero. Wow. Just like flipping a switch. And it, it, um, and that's when our daughter went to work on, you know, trying, trying to get this e-commerce going for us. And that, uh, that got us back to shipping some oysters. And then, um, during this whole pandemic, there have been some oysters, a couple in DC, a couple in Chicago that are, have been customers of ours that were still using oysters. I don't think the restaurants were open. I think they were doing pop-up takeout type stuff. Um, but we, we uh, you know, we kind of limped through it, shipping out about half of what we normally do. But I think we felt the same as also a lot of other farms. We had a lot of support from our community. And if you dug down deep into who was, who was buying our oysters and getting them shipped to family and friends, it was connections. It was friends of friends of friends, relatives. I mean, we had nieces and nephews ordering oysters <laughs> and we were a little embarrassed about that, but we felt a lot of love and support from our community. And I think a lot of oyster farmers did as well. Well, I think that, that's really been key for everybody, you know, just family coming together and helping each other during these times. So, you know, why wouldn't it be the same thing for, you know, the oyster farmers also? Yep. yep. Really appreciated that. Can you guys hear me? I think I'm losing okay, connection. Yeah, now we can. We lost you for a minute. All right, so that must be a, a sign that we're going to end this podcast right now. <laughs> and uh, thank you guys for, uh, for uh, you know, taking time out of your busy days of, you know, killing the oyster game. And uh, appreciate you. We thank you. appreciate you, too, and look forward to seeing you soon. Of course, and, of course. We're going we're gonna to send you some information on, on the coalition because you need to be a member. I think Gardner I'm is already in. Oh. He's in. Sorry. Yeah, Sorry. I'm in. <laughs> Sorry. I'm in. But today I did share a post um, on my Instagram trying to, because, you know, you know, you don't have to be an oyster farmer or, you know, a chef to, to join. You know, it's important for anybody who thinks this thing is important to join. So to all my listeners out there, um, go to the site. I'll, I'll post the site in the description and you guys can check it out for yourself. But I'm a part of it and I stand with it and beside it and we're all standing together. So, you know, yeah, go check it out. that's right. All right. You guys be safe. OK, you, you too. too. Thanks a lot. Bye -bye. See you.